0: This episode of A Beacon of Hope is proudly brought to you by Campfire Studios. To find out more, visit campfirestudios.co.nz A Beacon of Hope is a weekly podcast that shines a light on the human spirit and explores the power of hope in our lives. Join me will fleming as i talk to people from all walks of life about where they find hope and how they use it to navigate life's challenges
1: be good be safe and be happy
0: Okay team, I'm just rushing to get this podcast ready before dinner, <laughs> so let me stick to the notes, as uh, because I want to get you to the podcast, but I'm trying to get it ready, I've been sick, so I've got that uh, Morgan Freeman bass in my voice, stick to the script please, Will. Dr. Paul Wood is a renowned motivational speaker, author, and doctor of psychology, who has overcome extraordinary challenges to become a beacon of hope for those seeking redemption and resilience i also want to add that paul is my mate and he has been so gracious with his time over the last 10 years podcasting with me on different podcasts that i've had but this by far is the best talanoa corridor conversation that we've had because it's about hope and paul is the beacon of hope for us today, so let's get into this podcast with Dr. Paul Wood. Thank you, Paul. Love you, brother. Awesome. Enjoy the podcast, everyone.
1: I mean, one of the things that's super, I think, liberating, but also something which really gives other people permission to be way more open with me, is that I'm a convicted murderer. And so... Like, I'm not going to be judging you on whatever minor <laughs> thing you got going on, you know? It's like people in glass houses throwing stones now. Oh, I think that's a pretty fucking big glass house, bro. <laughs> hey, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so the wicked thing is, is that people really do feel they have permission to share stuff with me mm. and engage with me, uh, you know, in a way that is just most unusual. And so it's interesting because I take that as a real, uh, it's sort of like an honor and a privilege. It's privileged access to people's reality, their struggles that I get. But of course, hey, nothing meaningful comes without a cost. Mm. So it's also exhausting.
0: Absolutely. I think about you all the time like that. Tell the story, Paul, tell the story. Mm. It's the last thing. I mean, I want to ask you about hope, but I don't want to do it under that context. But I spend an awful amount of time saying things like this. Where do you find hope? You know, and I used to use light and dark and those terms, and trying to find ways to articulate that. And but back to your point, man, it must be bloody exhausting mm. trying to like oh, you ah oh, you want me to dance again, mate? Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, it's part of your business too, right? Yeah,
1: hundred percent, right? You know, you got to you got to do the financial component. You got to clock those life tokens, hey? Mm. You know, there's no getting away from that. And fortunately for me my background was working for a professional services organisation that was, you know, ultra right-wing in its billables in the sense that if you can't demonstrate that you're, you know, uh, generating revenue three to four times your salary, then you can't justify your existence. Mm. However, the cool thing about that too is if you can demonstrate that you're generating more than that, then you 100% warrant a pay rise. Mm. And so it's very tangible It's very meritocracy. It was really cool in that respect. But to give you an idea is like, you know, originally one of the hard drives of that business was called Ayn Rand. And I don't know how well you know your like (laughs) capitalist ideology, but Ayn Rand is basically the woman who was the guru and mentor for Alan Greenspan, who became, you know, governor of the Reserve Bank in the U.S. and all of that sort of stuff, like ultra – ultra-libertarian, ultra-capitalist ideology. So the cool thing about that is that lens, even though that's not my lens politically in most areas, I'm more sort of like a policy person rather than a committed to one way or one party. But the cool thing about it was is it built my sense of value on my time and on myself, Mm. which normally if you're a more people-focused person, often you don't do that. Mm. You know, you feel fuck my, you feel embarrassed, you feel shy about actually charging for yep. stuff, and stuff feels big when you're charging as an individual, whereas when you work in an organisation and you go, okay, well, this is what this is worth mm. in terms of market value, it gives you a really different lens on that stuff, I think. Interesting.
0: And yeah. also when you're talking, I'm thinking you have to spend an awful amount of time dipping in between the individual, the collective, and at some levels you represent both right? You were talking about visiting the prisons this morning. Yeah. You have to somewhat soak up everything at all at once. Mm. And I don't know. No wonder you're a doctor in psychology. You know, you try and understand the damn mind.
1: Oh, bro, I'm just trying to work my way out of my own (laughs) fucked upness. That's all I'm doing. That's, uh, you know, the only people who study psychology are trying to address their own issues or haven't got enough self-awareness to know that's what they're doing yet. I mean, joke-ish on that one-ish, right? But I love that old um, Alan de Botton, you know. He was like, he's he's a really brilliant thinker in philosophy. And, and one of the things that really gives you hope in terms of relationships is some of the work he's done there. You know, just to link back to hope, hey. We often, we experience struggle in our own relationships. And then we go to dinner with another couple or see a couple on Instagram. We go, oh, it's just us. Everyone else is so much happier. Whereas one of the things he talks about is some of the research they've done where, for example, you know, they surveyed people in long-term relationships and they found that if you were thinking to yourself, you know, twice a week, why am I with this person? Hmm. Then you're in a normal relationship.
0: <laughs> That's
1: normal, wow. bro. The struggle is real for everyone. It's it's difficult. It's challenging. Mm. But another thing he talked about that I love is that instead of going on, like, first dates with people where you present this completely illusory, unrealistic version of yourself, yourself in the best light – it would be more useful to people actually long term as if when they first caught up, they went, okay, these are the ways in which I'm fucked up. Now you tell me the ways in which you're fucked up. And then we've got realistic expectations and understanding of each other.
0: Interesting. Did you, did you do that with your now wife when you first met?
1: I oh, know I completely tried to present an unrealistically positive view of myself, which is probably why I'm with her. When I first that and met you, the fact you she got hapu,
0: <laughs> right? But when I first met you, were you with her? That's like ten years ago. Man, yeah, we met ten years ago. Right, my wife and I. Do you think it was because of our podcast? Now it, it was joking. definitely, bro.
1: Oh, thanks, it was Ray. definitely <laughs> Yeah. <fun>. Yep. So <laughs> the kids are going to be staying with you over the holidays. <laughs> there just, you go. You're welcome. Well, you've told Miss Pat yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Islander too, so yeah, yeah. I oh, see that's where right. This she's going. got the Cook Island, <laughs> Cook Island connection
1: to you, right? So it will be related for sure.
0: But It'll I mean that's so interesting you're talking about like you know and and I guess what would you say if we're all meeting people and we're all putting on this mask yeah and i i don't know what is it is it right to kind of go in there and say like hey man these are the these are the true bits of me i feel like that would spook most people off
1: Oh, definitely. Mm. But I suppose Alain de Botton's idea was that if that was the normal, Mm. it would be healthier Mm. long-term. There'd be less disappointment, right, when you start to see the reality, the humanity of each other. Yeah. And so there'd be less struggle there. But, you know, like uh, I I suppose it's interesting for me, like visiting the prison this morning. So probably the most important thing that I do uh, in terms of that area and for a lot of people, you don't have to be in prison to get this, is, oh, you'll like this, but I'm a beacon of hope. Yeah, And I don't mean that in like a a grandiose way at all. What I mean is I provide a point of reference of someone who's come out the other side, who's been accepted back into society. So when I go along to the prison or, you know, my book, the first book uh, (coughs) available everywhere on Kindle (laughs) and Audible and all the rest of it, How to Escape from Prison, most popular book in the prison system. And I regularly talk to people, like if I visit prison, who have read it, and then I'll be like, oh, how did you get out of it? Did you get it from the prison library? And we donated copies to all the prison libraries when it was mm. first published, myself mm. and Harper Collins, the publisher. And people would just be like, nah, this other guy in the wing had it and just gave it to me. Mm. And, and I think there's heaps of good content in there for everyone. And when I go along and speak like I did today, hey, all good. I'm trying to drop some gold, bro, yeah. based on the things I've learned. But the reality is, is perhaps the most impactful thing I do, the most important thing I do, is provide a reference point as someone else who's come from a dark place and whose background is known and yet is still accepted back into society. Mm. And I think in many respects that's that's where I add most value is for people who are in dark places, giving them a sign and an indication that there is a way forward, there is a path back always, because that's what, so much hope is about, right?
0: Absolutely. We can call what you're saying hope, right? Yeah. Did you, you, did you ever think of that when you were kind of, you know, during those dark times? Were you hoping that what were you hoping for maybe is the yeah, question? Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, this is interesting, eh? There's some interesting elements to this. I mean, I think a, a useful thing to discuss around this is actually what's called the Stockdale Paradox. And I just want to explain this a little bit. This comes from a guy called Vice Admiral Stockdale. He was the most senior member of the U.S. military to become a prisoner of war during Vietnam. And it's really relevant to me because it changed my life reading about him. Mm. Because he was someone, he was a prisoner of war for eight years the vast majority of prisoners' war did not survive that long, particularly he was in what was called the Hanoi Hilton, regularly experienced torture. You know, the, the, the gloves were off over there, bro. I mean, because if you think about it from the Vietnamese perspective, right, when they call it the American War, of course, you know, you've got this invading superpower coming in. Hey, man, you know, gloves are off, A eh, when it comes to people coming invading your country. But the thing about Stockdale is he was able to survive this and come out the other end and really thrive and have a successful life after that. And a big part of it was his faith, his belief, his hope that things would get better and he would get released. However, here's the paradox piece, Mm. bro. When he was asked about, you know, why is it that you survived and made out when so many people died, what he said is that he had hope and belief that things would get better But he was always, always willing to embrace the brutal reality of his existence and not have unrealistic hope. Because he said what he would do is he would hope that things would get better and he would never waver in that. Hey, look, things will change. It's going to work out. It's going to get better. However, this is a terrible situation I'm in and I have no control Mm. over when that will happen, how that will happen. The reason he survived is because he was a practitioner of stoic philosophy, bro. He had studied Stoicism in university prior to becoming a prisoner of war. And, man, if you want a good opportunity to to test your mettle in terms of Stoic philosophy, that idea that what's of value is, you know, the stuff you can control and the only stuff you can try and control is what goes on between your ears, right? Mm. How you think about the world, how you behave, how you respond to your circumstances. And so he was prepared to embrace the brutal reality of his existence. But he said lots of other people – would have this hope where they would go, there'll be a prisoner exchange at Christmas. We'll be out at Christmas. And then Christmas would come. And oh, it'll happen at Easter. And then Easter would come. And then they die of a broken heart, bro, Mm -hmm. because of these unmet expectations. And the amount of letdown. I mean, it's interesting. If we wanted to talk about the neuroscience of it, right, we'd be talking about like dopamine peaks and all of this Mm -hmm. sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is what he was able to do is that paradox of have hope but also fully embrace brutal reality. Yeah, It's like there's a Stoic idea that I love that sort of captures this a little bit for me too, and that's the idea that we're not always in control of our life and our circumstances, right? And, in fact, this is how the Stoics describe it. This is sort of like how it's described by Marcus Aurelius, you know, and uh, the Roman uh, philosopher and emperor there. And what he would say is that it's like you're a dog and your leash is tied to a wagon, And you don't get to control where that wagon's going, what speed it's going, or anything else. But you have the choice of either being dragged along or running along the side. Those are your choices. And the hope lies in that ability to improve your situation, right, to choose to run alongside life rather than be dragged along. Mm. But a key idea there and one that was really important to me in my imprisonment turning my life around too, but also I try to communicate to other people, is that idea – Real hope for me isn't about the wagon changing direction. Real hope for me isn't about external factors like those prisoners hoping to get released at Christmas. Real hope for me is that I can reach inside and I can discover insights, ideas, and approaches that will enable me to change myself to more effectively engage with the life I want So it's very internally focused. It's about me. It's not about, oh, if I just win lotto, you know, or if I just do this. It's always about that, hey, how can I try and work on me in a way that's useful? And for me, that's what my hope centers on. Mm. And I love that too because, again, you know, and, and, again, like stoicism was such a big influence on me. That's why I'm talking about it in terms of hope. You know, a big idea they had there which I really buy into was the idea that, you know, as a student, as a student of life, you want to be like a boxer, not a fencer. And the reason is is the weapon of the fencer, the sword, you know needs to be picked up and has to be put down again, whereas the weapon of the boxer is part of them.
0: Mm.
1: you know you can't separate it from them. they just need to clench their fist, and that's what I try to zero in and focus
0: on. There's always so much to unpack with you and I never know what my next question's going to be with you because I'm like listening to an audio book and I'm like, shit, you're on my podcast. I think what popped in my mind was you must come across many people who present to you like they've lost hope. Mm. And I don't want to go into details, but I want to know what do you think things to be hopeful about? And I think you know, Dr. Alia Bujalova, mm. She's your pal.
1: Um, no, I don't know personally. I oh, listened okay. to the podcast. I oh, thought she was clearly okay. deep.
0: Well, you are the only two doctors of psychology that I know. So no. I thought you were pals. Um, Maybe we could all do <laughs> a, a podcast. That's like
1: me saying you're related to my wife because you're Cook Island, we, eh? so we, hey, we, we, we each probably had go We've each we had a go. Are. Exactly, yeah. Um, i actually have more confidence <laughs> in my gifts there,
0: yeah. Um, And she talked about toxic hope versus hope. Mm. hope. And this is part of my journey. When I picked the word hope, I'm like, actually, that's quite straightforward, but it's not. Mm. And I like it because I've gone down that path of do you find it in breathing? Do you find it in cold water? Do you find it in meditation, religion, the opposite to religion, logic? And it's like, man, pick something to be hopeful for and careful what you pick because each, you know, you could be wishing rather Mm. than hoping. And I'm trying to get some steel around that. And you're providing that, Paul, uh, especially with that kind of stoicism I don't know much about Stoicism, but is that where you do things like walk down the road and with no pants on and handle the jangle when people say, <laughs> that dude's got no pants on? Can
1: I just say there are different approaches to it, right? <laughs> and, in fact, I would say, like, I mean, a, a couple of different schools of thought are captured by the two different Roman emperors, Marcus Aurelius, and for anyone who's watched the movie Gladiator, yep. are you not entertained? <laughs> Marcus Aurelius is, like, the mentor general emperor who Russell Crowe is fighting for Mm. in the Germanic Wars at the beginning, who dies, and Commodus, the bad guy, is his son. And that's real. They were historical people. And the irony is is you had Marcus Aurelius, and his school of Stoicism is hardcore, bro. He would have been all about the Cold War and the rest of it because he believed you need to absolutely shun the luxuries of life and just focus on the Stoic ideal of, you know, doing what is right in terms of nature, in terms of contribution to others. And so he would sleep on wooden floorboards. He was the emperor, bro, and he would do it hard because that was his choice. He shunned the value of that stuff, right? So that's one way to do it. But the way I probably more align with is the approach of Seneca. Seneca was another really important uh, Roman senator, And he was the richest man in Rome at one point. He was the guy who financed most of the invasions into Britain to try and get more resources there. He was also a hardcore Stoic. But his belief was it's possible for you to enjoy nice things and luxury and pleasure as long as you don't place false value on them. And so he had a different approach in that respect. But what he would also do to make sure he kept himself in check is while he had all of this wealth and all of this luxury, on a regular basis, he would wear the worst clothes, sleep on the floor, eat the worst quality food just to remind himself there's nothing to fear there. Hmm. You
0: know? Absolutely.
1: And just to keep it real. So I'm more the Seneca approach. Bro, I like the Air New Zealand lounge and the free coffee (laughs) and all that sort of stuff. (laughs) I like all those things but I try really hard not to place false value on it. So, you know, no pants, pants, kind of depends on what appeals, eh? (laughs) One thing I would say, which might be an interesting thing to talk about, to build a little bit further around, you know, the hope piece is what we know about optimism as well. Mm. And this is a really interesting one, right? Like the distinction, what's the distinction between hope and optimism? So both of them contain a belief that things can get better, that things can improve. That's hope, but optimism is being hopeful Hmm. that things can improve and get better. However, from a psychological perspective, optimism is also about the ability to find good in the present. So it's got the hopefulness, but it's also got that ability to go, actually, you know what? Hmm. There are some good things going on right now too. Hmm. Things can get better there are some good things going on now too. And it's really interesting, like some of the research that sits behind ideas around optimism, uh, because the original research sort of like stemmed from uh, a guy called Martin Seligman. Now, Martin Seligman is the originator of positive psychology. Now, what's positive psychology? Well, historically, psychology has been deficiency focused. Well, come to me. What is wrong with you? I will fix you. I will make you whole, right? It's this deficiency focus. Whereas positive psychology is like, fuck that. How great can you be? Hmm. Let's work on that. Hmm. Man, what is your potential? What does the most high-performing person in the area you care about look like? Let's get that happening. Hmm. So it's a really different lens. But that's not how he started off, of course. He started off like heaps of, you know, um, <laughs> doctoral candidates and postdocs and that sort of stuff in labs doing experiments. And he was doing this experiment with dogs where what they would do, and this is, you know, if you're a dog lover, trigger warning dog lovers, okay? I didn't give anyone trigger warnings about prison and murder and that, but I know <laughs> you fur baby lovers will freak out. But what he was doing for this research is they would have these cages and the floor could be would be electrified in the cages. And what they do is they put these dogs in and there would be a partition between two cages and they'd be in the cage where the floor is electrified. And what they would do is they'd electrify electrify the floor and the dog would jump the partition to safety. So it's no longer getting an electric shock now. But what they found is that if you didn't have the barrier down, so there was no escape and you electrified the floor pretty quickly a lot of the dogs would develop what we now refer to as learned helplessness. Hmm. And what this would result in is a lack of hope. So when they would get that experience, they would just lie flat on the floor and just whimper as they were getting an electric shock. Then the barrier would get lowered, but they wouldn't jump over. They would just stay on the floor whimpering because they've learned that they're helpless, that there's no hope, so there's no point trying. But that was inconsistent across the dogs. It wasn't consistent across all of them. And it made Seligman wonder about how that related to people. Why is it that some people, you know, lose hope? And by the way, this is a useful thing to know. A lot of people who commit suicide are not actually clinically depressed, but they feel hopeless, helpless, purposeless, and useless. That's a common thing. And that lack of hope, that lack of ability to see that things are worthwhile, is so detrimental for us, Mm. and it can you know, lead to really negative choices that there's no coming back from. And again, if we look at it in terms of those dogs, just lying there whimpering, eh? And so what he wanted to do is he wanted to figure out, well, what's the difference between people who have that learned helplessness versus those who persevere and have hope and maintain hope? And that led to a whole lot of study around optimism, right? And what he found out is that there are Three sort of key factors that differentiate people who are have that sort of like positive hope and realistic optimism. Now, realistic optimism, right, that's where we incorporate that Stockdale paradox Mm -hmm. and where we go, I have hope, things can get better, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to deny things are bad now or that I'm not going to own the reality of that or that it will be hard to make change. You know, that's realistic optimism where you can get that sort of toxic hope, Mm. you know, that unrealistic optimism, which is everything is awesome, you know, (laughs) it's just going to be all good. I don't need to do any work. I've decided to lose weight. There'll be no barriers there. I've decided to get fit. That'll be easy, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And what he found is that people who were more likely to be negatively impacted by events, to have that learned helplessness, to lose hope, to lack hope, to not have that optimism – were people who perceived their challenges as permanent? You know, the old Persian proverb, this too shall pass. That is the counter to that. A. Eh? Mm. People who are in that dark space are way more likely to go, this is it. Nothing's going to change here. This is forever. So they see things as permanent. He talks about this in terms of the three Ps, right? So there's one, permanence. The second is pervasiveness. And this is where you go, you know, everything's terrible because the things that are really troubling you are like a drop of ink in a glass of water where they discolour everything for you. You lose sight of the fact that stuff's good. Yeah. And, you know, it was talked about previously um, by my psychologist buddy, okay? Your pals. Uh, yeah, you know, I'll just – Shared I'll, office yeah, space Exactly, shared office space, <laughs> But – Um, She was talking about the the negative bias people have, right, in terms of their brains, just that tendency to orientate towards the negative. And and that can be responsible for this pervasiveness where we just lose sight of the stuff that's actually going, well, okay, there's a restructure at work. Things are going terrible at work. And I lose sight of the fact that, hey, I'm healthy. You know, hey, I've got a roof over my head. There are other good things going on in my life. Mm. And the third P is personalization. And this is where you go, this is about me. This is because of me. This doesn't happen to other people. You know, I, one of my favorite psychologists said the whole point of adult development is to outgrow your adolescent narcissism. Because, you know, as an adolescent, you got teenagers, bro, mm-hmm. you know this. Yeah. You know, they operate like they are the center of the universe. Everyone else is a cameo, you know, in their performance. The gravitational pull of the teenage ego is something else, right? (laughs) And we all have tendencies towards that, which is completely natural because, of course, you center yourself in everything because you only have direct access to your own thoughts, your own emotions, your own perceptions. Everything else requires some kind of, like, guesswork or communication. So, of course, we centre ourselves. But as you get older, you realise that's illusory. I feel like I'm the centre of the universe, but I know everyone feels like that. Mm. I know that's not the case. Whereas teenagers, man, they don't know that, eh? That is their reality. So, anyway... That's the third one. It's where people go, oh, you know, everyone else is having an easier time. So it's just me who's struggling now. Look at all the happy, smiling faces. I'm the only one who's miserable, and it's because, you know, I'm not good enough in some way. I'm a bad person in some way. It's about me and because of me. Mm. And so the counter to that, you know, learned optimism, Seligman refers to it as, but how you build that sense of healthy hope in that respect As you counter those three P's, you go, this too shall pass. You know, nothing's permanent. And it's called the little, um, anecdote behind that, the story behind that Persian proverb, because this is, this is the story is the Persian king, you know, he said to uh, some of his key advisors, he said, I want you to go and get something for me that will make me feel better when I'm unhappy. And so they searched far and wide. They looked at all these good quality cloaks and Experiences and all of these different things. And what they settled on in the end was getting him a plain ring that had engraved in it, this too shall pass. Wow. But, of course, the hook there, right, is that that's true of your happiness and your pleasant emotions as well. Nothing's permanent. Man, we've been going deep already on the philosophy for today, so let's keep going <laughs> in that way, right? Um, Democritus, the... the Greek philosopher, it was him or Heracles, I can't remember which one, they're like ancient pre-Socratic, right, so thousands of years old, said you can never step in the same river twice, because when you step in it again, the river is changed, and so is the man, you know, change is the only certainty, this too shall pass, but if you can't see that, then it's really hard to have hope. And the pervasiveness piece, man, you and I have spoken about this before, you know, that attempt to try and cultivate a sense of gratitude and find the good things in your life, even if they're small things. And as I told you, when I was in prison, what I loved reading about was way worse prisons. Really? Yeah, man, because it gave me a sense of perspective. Mm. When I thought I was having a hard time in maximum security, getting attacked by gang members with weight bars and stuff like that, it was really good to read about, you know, Russian prisons, it was really good to read about um, Indian prisons where if your family won't pay for your food, you're not eating, man, you know, stuff like that, because then I could go as bad as this is, shit could be worse. Mm. And so that's that pervasiveness, but, and that's a real skill and it's something you often have to be deliberate and diligent about going, hey, where are those rays of sunshine? Where are things good?
0: Where can you go to learn those Paul or can you of well <laughs> you need to write a book about this because it's like how do you do that? and I mean when the wheels fall off because I think a lot of people aren't in those intense enough situations, so we become the mm. dog on the floor mm. where the, you know where you're in that situation, you're like, well, it's like a or B, and I'll choose b you know
1: yeah, yeah, it's interesting eh? it's it's funny you mentioned that because, of course, my second book, another bestseller, (laughs) uh, Mental Fitness, uh, available everywhere like the first one, How to Escape (laughs) from Prison. You know, I talk about some of the cool stuff in there, like the mental skills used in the special forces, you know, to help you cope under pressure, you know, when that floor is electrified and the rest of it. And, hey, shout out to the New Zealand Defence Force in Mm. respect of the generosity that was shown to me there in terms of trying to, you know, provide me with information that I could then pass on to the New Zealand public because the special forces community, the Defence Force psychologists, and Defence Force more broadly, are people who really care about the New Zealand public. That's what they're about, their service, right? Mm-hmm. But anyway, you know, you can read about that sort of stuff um, and there's some good skills there. But the next book I'm actually writing, I'm in the process of plotting out and putting together now, uh, please make it a bestseller by buying a pre-order that. But anyway, that one there uh, is actually going to be about, you know, hate, what is the path back and the way forward? How can you come back from some of that stuff? Absolutely, Because I think there's real value in that for people. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it's part of that getting rid of that last P, that, that personalization. Mm. And it's like I was talking about earlier where I'm lucky that people share heaps of stuff with me and it gives me insights into just how real the struggle is for so many of us, eh? And it's that ability to go, hey, fellow traveller, you know, we're all on this journey together. It makes me think, actually, you know, like um some of the challenges we have with just the tribalism that goes on politically, ideologically yep. at the moment and the rest of it and that, whereas one of the things we talk about in psychology is, you know, it's really natural for people to do that, us versus them. Mm. But if we really want to flourish as individuals and as a society – We need to be looking for the common humanity in each other, you know, rather than focusing on the sort of the petty differences, and and particularly because so many of them are really, like, if you sat down with people, the fundamental beliefs are the same, but then you just get these, you know, these nuanced differences on the edges and those become the focus. It's interesting because, yeah, in psychology and when I work in workplaces, trying to break down silos to make organisations you know, more effective working together, you talk about the difference between common enemy versus common humanity, and common enemy is what you see so much as us versus them.
0: Mm.
1: It's like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get my sense of connection and relationship with you at the expense of those others, mm. those baddies, and I'm going to focus on the differences between us. Whereas common humanity is that where I expand the circle and I go, I'm going to look for similarities, I'm going to look for common ground, I'm going to try and find the common humanity between us. And, you know, that's what we want to try and cultivate, right? I mean, who doesn't? Mm. Who would sit here and go, no, nah, no, nah, common enemy is the goal? Mm. But the problem is, is, you know, that takes insight and it takes work. You're not always going to nail it and you need to be aware of it, right?
0: I mm. also wonder if uh, – I- read something the other day that an algorithm's job is to make you more predictable, (laughs) and it freaked me out because for it to serve or spew up stuff for you, it's got to know what you're going to respond to. So you hear those stories that people kind of get radicalized through the algorithm because it keeps showing you the thing that it thinks you're going to. It's not judging. It's just like I need to get clicks. Yeah. And I wonder if you said most people will sit here and say, no, we want to find common themes. Maybe some people don't. Maybe we're trained out of it, maybe is what I mean.
1: What I would say is there's great emotional gratification and in righteous indignation. I don't know
0: what that means. <laughs> okay,
1: righteous <laughs> indignation is, you know, I'm right and indignant at you for being so wrong. Gotcha. And when you feel that way, when you, I'm on the right side of history. Woo, damn. <laughs> That's heady stuff, eh? Mm. Whoa, you know, think about that. Oh, it feels good. Damn, I feel superior. You know, <laughs> damn, I feel good. Because, you know, you've got all of these neurotransmitters firing away that just make you feel good and motivated and purposeful. But the reality is, is you've just let your primitive brain take control there, right? Mm. And that's the thing, you know, like uh I love that idea that, If you have intellectual integrity about a position, then you must be prepared to say you would change that position Hmm. if you received the right evidence to counter your current point of view. And then a good thought experiment is to go, well, what would that evidence need to be to convince me? But man, that requires all that thinking brain, that prefrontal cortex, and that just doesn't feel as good as, woo. being on the right side of history, bro. Dude, or any
0: idea, like, I'm the cold bath guy, I'm the breathing guy. Yeah. When I stripped it all away, it's like, what do I think you, I or anyone else couldn't do without? And it's that word. Mm. But I don't know if that's true. I'm okay if it's not. I'm also 10 years into my podcasting career and have never gone viral and think it's partly because I'm too curious about many things. Mm. So let's zoom in. Let's keep zooming in. But I genuinely think, what does that hope mean to me? I it, Partly it's yeah not understanding spirituality, religion, the roles those things play, kind of science, where the things fit in. I, I sit here a lot of the time thinking, I don't know which is right there, but maybe none of them. But am I useful then? Or should you have a point of view? and then, gosh, you've got to be brave to have a point of view because it's all online.
1: Yeah, I mean, and this is the thing. You, you've got to have points of view. However, you mm. need to be able to hold those out lightly because you're humble enough and realistic enough to realize you might be wrong. Hmm. I want you to think about this. Let's think about paradigm changes within science, okay? for Here's a good example, right? We were talking about earlier, like, teenagers... You're the center of the universe. Think about the Copernican Revolution, and this is where there was a transition from thinking that the Earth was the center of the universe to realizing that we orbited around the sun, right, that we revolved around the sun. Mm. So that's the Copernican Revolution. I want you to think about how certain people would have been in their belief that the Earth was the center of the universe. Everything they experienced, everything they believed led them to that place. Mm. You know, you can be so certain of your beliefs, but if you're a student of history, all you can know is what we believe in science, for example, is the best guess based on information available now. But if there's one thing we know from the history of science, it's there will be better explanations coming forward that will explain even more, mm. more effectively. And if that's true for science, I mean, how arrogant do you need to believe that that doesn't apply to you as an individual, that you have the right answers, the right knowledge that it's infallible. And in fairness, I don't think that necessarily requires arrogance. And by the way, I am definitely someone who has leanings in that way, right? My brothers like to jokingly call me Dr. Right. (laughs) Everyone loves to know it away. And I can definitely be that guy in terms of ego and inclinations, But that's that primitive brain, the same brain that likes to go, yeah, we're good and you're bad in terms of that tribalism. But I have hope for society because I also know from my own experience that I have hope for myself Mm. that I can deal with those more primitive impulses to, you know, demonstrate my worth through knowledge and certainty and unwarranted confidence and to go, hey, I could be completely wrong and need to change my mind about Mm. things.
0: Shit, I did it again. I'm just looking at the you, the audio book. And not thinking <laughs> of Only you do that. Okay. Um, This is an interesting chat that we've had because you've dipped a bit deeper into the kind of history of philosophy and science, and you haven't really done that with me before. But this has been part of your journey. You're genuinely a student of history. You like going back and trying to understand, or I guess you need to for your work, right?
1: Man, well, I mean, to be honest with you, so much of that came from my imprisonment. I spent 10 years, 10 months behind bars from 18 to 29. I mean, you know all this stuff. Fully detailed in one of my best-selling books. (laughs) Anyway, the thing about it was is that when I did start to change, it was through education. The original word for educate means to lead out of, to lead out of the darkness of your own ignorance, and that's Mm -hmm. what it would do for me. But where it really changed me is because I started pursuing what would have historically been called a liberal education. And a liberal education is something that focuses on history, that focuses on philosophy, that focuses on the ability to learn how to think critically, and that equips you for life in a way that a single focused occupation wouldn't. Like when I did my master's degree, for example, I didn't focus exclusively on one area of psychology. I just went, what am I interested in? So I did evolutionary psychology. I did neuroscience. I did uh, concepts of consciousness. I just explored all these different things. And I read vorace- voraciously. Jeez voraciously, Louise. Um, the good thing about that, as an example, was I did all this reading and had never heard any of these words said. <laughs> and, oh, my wife, honestly, she cracks up at me because – Like the veneer is so thin on my education, like I've read all this stuff, but I regularly mispronounce words still. I'm much better at it. Let me give you an example, right? Like a key idea in in, uh, science is variables, right? Like I control this variable, we see what the outcome is and the rest of it. So I had a PhD and I was still calling that word variable (laughs) until someone said to me, oh, do you mean variable? And this is recently, I'm 46, I've had a PhD for like over a decade, man, and I only just learned how to pronounce one of those kids. See, there's hope, bro. There's hope. <laughs> and better never stops, man. Honestly, eh? It's the, the journey, the journey. And I think, again, it's that attempt uh, to be the student who's the boxer, not the fencer, mm. where you don't rely on that external stuff, but you try to build your inner game, mm. that capability, And, you know, to see things, including yourself, you know, for what they are and who you are and get past some of the stories we tell. Mm. And, man, that is a discipline that just you you can be hopeful about and get better at. But that's going to be a work in progress.
0: Wow. Let me take us down a side road for a second, and we we can edit this out. I've been thinking a lot about AI. Uh Got any thoughts? I've been itching. I've been Googling who the hell to talk to around here who can talk about if it's a good thing, a bad thing, if it's going to turn us into you know these predictable robots that it can seep our soul from. What's your initial thoughts? Got any thoughts? It's tough, eh?
1: Like, this is one where you need to get Sam Harris or someone on here, bro. Like, to be honest, I'm not informed enough to have any solid views or opinions on it. I know there's quite a bit of difference there. And, of course, I'm of that generation where I just think Skynet. (laughs) <laughs> you know at what point does it become conscious and decide to ask questions of itself and then go what are these stupid questions that these people are asking and you know and where we can't understand it we're literally we're like an ant to it mm. you know what i mean that mm. kind of gulf in terms of understanding intent and what's going on um but all i know is i'm hopeful because one of my favorite genres is like um post-apocalyptic stuff I love reading books about that, you know, post end of the world, zombie apocalypse stuff and that. And there's always some people who survive, bro. So have hope. No matter what happens, we'll be all
0: good. <laughs> maybe, maybe let me reframe it. Um, you, if you're not an expert in AI, is it easier to say you're an expert in humanity, the understanding, the human mind, at least more than everyday people, right? So. If AI people were coming to you and saying, what should we make sure this thing has? Does it need to, you know, it needs to have what? It needs to have these elements of humanity. Okay,
1: Okay. like if you want to strip that back in, and let's use the term expert, like the standard definition of expert is, you know, someone who's done more than 10,000 hours of dedicated practice in an area and specialised in an area. So on that basis, all good. But as anyone who knows me would say, you know, there's a big, Difference between knowing stuff versus implementing stuff effectively. Yeah, you know, like I know a lot about this, but it doesn't mean I always nail it. That's for sure.
0: But, 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 just quickly, Paul, if yeah. I was part of an AI panel, I'd go to doctors of psychology of to course. say, but they haven't. Like you, don't have anyone coming up, and like Bro, I, you was, and- I was just
1: trying to be self-deprecating for a bit there. Let me answer your question more effectively. No, but I know I mean, it doesn't. It's, it's a say, worry
0: that well. AI is not looking for people who spend all their time thinking about humanity.
1: Mm. Yeah, but would you want AI that had you – no, no, you know what AI that resembles humanity is? The Greek gods, bro. Hmm. I don't know if you know much about Greek mythology – but the mythology of the Greek gods is that they were just as flawed, just as fucked up as people are, <laughs> but with heaps more power. Is that really what we want, AI? <laughs> Do we want AI petty and envious and jealous and making decisions on the basis of avoiding pain rather than doing what's right and just unmitigated pursuit of pleasure? Because that's fundamentally how people operate, eh? Mm. You know, like if we strip away the civilized veneer of people, you know, there's some pretty sort of primitive basic stuff that sits underneath. But the reality is, is that, you know, we do have this great capacity to be better versions of ourselves mm. and to strive and to hope, bro, hey eh? Whereas, man, I don't know if I would want that for AI. Again, think of the Greek gods, man. Mm. Just go go back and revisit some of that stuff if you want to know what a human version of AI would look like.
0: I love that. You brought my conversation about AI back to ancient, (laughs) which is, no, it's cool. And it actually gave me a bit of a picture of like, yeah, we're kind of like awesome AI. We're what we're talking about. You can program in some simulated hope Mm. and then manifest that or at least aim for that. And, you know, maybe that's part of what people find so interesting about your story is that you did that and it gives us hope that we can too, you know?
1: Yeah, but I, I think this is an important one, and I always say this about my story, is that my st- is a story of opportunity and support from other people, hmm. you know? But I tell you a big thing around hope there. I've talked about all this, you know, like be the boxer as a student, not the fencer in turn or all of this sort of stuff. But the reality is that the real hope is actually people will help you, people will encourage you, people will provide you with opportunities but you have to believe that that's true and have the hope and the belief that you will survive and you will be okay and you will find the right people if you don't initially get that, Mm. you know, if you're let down. It's like one of the things we look at in psychology in terms of personality theory, right, is we look at the difference that people have between those who are more trusting versus those who are more suspicious, And some of the standard questions that you would write and design in a personality assessment to look at those sorts of things are, you know, is it better to believe in people and get let down, or is it better to assume the worst of people and not get caught out? Mm. And, you know, I, I really believe in that idea that it is better to put yourself out there and get shot down in the hope that actually people will support you and will encourage you, and I know enough from my life that people do. You just need to find the right people. And the people who shoot down, who don't support and encourage you, those are not the people that you want to have anything to do with anyway, right? Mm. So there's hope that there's even value in the rejection in it.
0: Wow. So you're kind of also saying – you don't even have to find hope in yourself. It's just hoping that someone may be there to hope for you. Mm,
1: man, I love that. I love that because for me as well, it's like such an important thing in terms of going into the prison. Like, bro, when I go in this one, I do not like going in there. I feel apprehensive. You know, instantly the hypervigilance or the PTSD type of stuff kicks in that helps keep you alive in a really dangerous environment like that. But then I'm talking to this group of men. And the level of hope that I have for them in terms of the potential in that room, like I feel really moved emotionally in terms of how meaningful it is to be just exposed to that in a really hard environment. Some people in there, there's a number of lifers, you know, like myself who have done long, long periods of time and have had really unfortunate circumstances but there's still that hope and I have hope for them and I give them expectations to live up to as other people do who are involved in the Take Two program. Man, that's what I love about that program is it's about hope, it's about pathways, it's about giving people a way out and a way forward, right? And, you know, I go in there, apprehensive and I walk away gassed up, bro, Hmm. gassed up just from being around that. And that question of hope, I think, there's no life without hope man not, not not, of any great meaning or any consequence. you know I mentioned that I used to love reading about uh, other prisons and that what I also loved reading was classic Russian realism. this is like Dostoevsky, Gogol, you know Tolstoy people like that because it's gritty and real and brutal you know it, it, it gives you so much of an insight into the Russian psyche historically and how hard a place it's been. And there's a character in there who loses faith in God and as a result of that ends up killing himself. There's one of the characters in one of Dostoevsky's books. And I think for me, like I'm not a religious person, but I do believe you have to have hope there's something beyond yourself, some meaning and purpose. For me, that's what like wairua is about from a Maori perspective, right? You know, which we often talk about as spirituality, as religion, and it can be that, but I've had some good guidance around this which suggests that, hey, really, fundamentally, it's about a sense of connection with something bigger than yourself mm. and the hope that goes with that, that there's meaning to this. Yeah. And can you really separate hope from meaning? Mm-hmm. I don't know.
0: No, not when you frame it how we framed it, where there's nothing to prove that there would be anyone to help anyone else, but you hope it to be true, and I'm willing to believe in that, you know. That's good shit. Yeah. That's good shit.
1: Can I just say what a blessing that imprisonment was because there's no way I could ever get through classic Russian realism these days. Man, I would be scrolling reels on Instagram, you know. You need some dedicated me time to sink into that. <laughs>
0: oh, um, I f- You're kind of someone who probably won't like me saying it but I want to – you're okay with me saying thank you, Paul, mm. but for being our beacon of hope today because I guess you feel the pressure of like we keep putting the superhero cape on you, right? Tell me how to fix everything going on. But but I, my hope is that that digital thing, whatever we do, mm. can translate from you being here with me and me feeling that wairua, that love, mm. that hope. When someone listens to it, I hope that it really can – I believe it to be true – yeah. That it still holds up. It might not be as powerful as in person, but it's maybe there's some little tidbits, or you know, I got to go read off ski, scare, scare, whatever you say. <laughs> it's probably is that a martial art? Nah, no, I know it's not. I know it's not. It's um, it's a yoga pose. No, no, but but you know, man, I just want to say thanks, and you've been very kind with me over these last ten years. Mm. You know, you like I say to a lot of people who sit in that chair, you are you charge heaps to hear stories. But with me, you're just like, yeah, bro, I'll come and talk and I'll give you all my IP and Mm. we'll share it, you know? Because I guess on the other side, I've never charged for podcasts either. So there's this nice balance and it's been bloody cool to – you know, hopefully you're cool with me calling you a mate and how we've become friends. And I saw you at the Rotorua hot pools. I and, know, bro. You know, my kids were impressed because they're like, "Who's that tattooed guy coming, <laughs> giving you a big <laughs> hug?" And I'm like, oh, "That's my mate. That's my mate Paul." Yeah, and nice. um nice. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's awesome. The final thing I want to ask you, man, is hey, just before you do, bro. Yes,
1: I just want to say something that I think is important. I'm completely okay with you saying all that because I don't believe that. I don't believe that hope and inspiring that or having impact on others requires any kind of all. I believe that all of us has the massive capacity to positively influence other people through the smallest of things we do. And so I hear you say that, but I go, actually, man, I ain't doing much, but it doesn't need much. Mm. And I think that's important because I think everyone needs to have hope that they can really meaningfully and deeply positively impact others through small things, Mm. not through big things. Yeah. So I I just wanted to mention that.
0: Awesome, awesome. This is the final tricky bit for me. In this podcast, it's been about exploring personally my relationship with my mum who passed last year, nearly a year ago. And I'm okay because she didn't leave me with a lot of baggage so she can rest and I'm all good. I'm on Mm. a good path. But I realise the bits I add into the podcast every now and then of talking to her, I didn't fucking say, say you love me, Mum. Mm. So when I feel it's right with guests and I did it with Di and hopefully I'll do it with mm. you, can you just spend a couple of minutes because these are digital artefacts online yeah, bro. telling your wife or your kids who <sighs> might watch this one yeah. day, can you just say those words?
1: Oh, I feel so emotional. Just yeah, even sorry analysis. about that. Nah, man, it's good. What's wrong with emotion? Yeah, well, Nothing wrong with emotion, bro. <laughs> And part of that is because, of course, my mum died when I was a teenager Mm. and I listened to your mum's voice Mm. on the podcast Mm. eh, and I'm impacted by it, bro. And, you know, it's such a, a great opportunity. And Marianne, I love you so much. You know, you have changed my life in bigger, more important ways than anyone could ever know. You know, the change I've gone through as a result of... Loving you as I do and sharing our beautiful boys and the experience of that is a bigger change in my life than, you know, going from delinquent to doctor and all that stuff that I get focused on, of course. And Brax, I love you so much. You're our firstborn and my heart grew bigger when you arrived. Gordy, my heart grew bigger still to accommodate you. I love you boys so much. And you have just given my life so much meaning and so much hope for the future.
0: Captured. Good. Yep. Mm. Archived. Perfect. Where can people follow you, Paul, if they want to? Oh, man. No, well, I've done do so many plugs. It's we've so good. It. But
1: look, it. social media, obviously, at DR Paul Wood. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, connect, connect, connect. I'm pretty active on those things. I got a, a YouTube channel as well, which you know lies relatively dormant, but I'm committed to doing more. Than you can find me, same at Dr. Paul Wood, and then of course. Uh, my books are available everywhere. I think I've mentioned it. Did I mention I've got a couple of books? For... <laughs> you
0: did mention them, but you didn't mention how you record your audio version, which could be uh, Ooh, in here. So could let's uh... well be, brother. Thanks, man. Appreciate oh, it. Real pleasure. Awesome. <laughs> Whew! This episode of A Beacon of Hope is proudly brought to you by Campfire Studios. Campfire Studios is an impact-led organisation amplifying the voices of Māori and Pacifica communities via podcasting and video content. To find out more, visit campfirestudios.co.nz. Two, three, four. Thank you for tuning in to this Frequency of Hope in our podcast today. If you found value from this episode and want to hear more, I would love it if you could follow, subscribe, and rate our show. By doing so, you will increase the frequency of the beacon of hope. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform, please take a moment to hit the follow or subscribe button and leave a rating and review. I truly appreciate your support and feedback and it helps us make our podcast even better. Thank you.
1: Be good. Be safe.
0: And be happy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: Sounds like that song, doesn't it? Be happy.
0: All right, Mama, yeah. we'll stop there, eh? Yeah, okay. okay.
1: All right.